Welcome to Swansea Cyber Law and Security Podcast. I'm Sarah Kochaya, doctoral researcher at Swansea University. And I'm uh, Patrick Bishop. I'm a senior lecturer in law at uh, Swansea University, or we should say now the Hillary Rodham Clinton School, School of, of Law. law. Uh, we are here today to discuss the cyber law and security news of the past uh, couple of weeks, couple of months. <laughs> we have uh, been absent for a while, but we're back. Um, and we should also say that, of course, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers, uh, the individuals, and not the organisations that we work for or are uh, partnered with. So that said, this is our fifth episode, and we've had a good... We've gone past the 350 plays this morning. Well, I would go with we're nearly at 400. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. Five hundred and no, sorry, what? Three hundred ninety-three. Three hundred. Oh yes, yeah, Yeah. you're quite right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for listening, whoever you are. Uh, So the first story we'll talk about today is something that came up last week, I believe, and it was a new uh, guidance published by the National Cyber Security Centre on the implementation of the Network and Information Systems Directive. This is an European Union directive which aims to achieve common level of network and information system security, specifically with respect to national critical infrastructure. So this will apply in the UK, regardless of Brexit. The government has, has said so. Uh, last year, so and it's it's obviously preparing itself to implement it. Yeah, because the the directive entered into force, twenty August twenty sixteen, but we have, I say, we member states, including the UK, have until the ninth of May, to implement. Yes. So. Yes. Uh, I suppose then... this has fallen by the wayside because May is a significant date for the GDPR, isn't it? So everyone's <laughs> talking about that, and not so <laughs> exactly. much this. No, this one. <laughs> Um, So it hopes to do three things. It hopes to improve the cybersecurity capabilities at national level, uh, but also cooperation among EU member states and friends. (laughs) Uh, Introducing also aims to introduce security measures and incident reporting obligations for the operators of essential services. So this is a term... Of this uh, of this directive, the operators of essential services, so OESs. <laughs> so these operators within critical national infrastructure and digital service providers. So you have OESs, CNIs, and DSPs. Yes, love their acronyms. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so basically, it sets out security requirements, incident notification rules uh, for these uh, uh, DSPs, so digital service providers, um, as, as well as these uh, OESs, <laughs> operators yeah. of essential services. But what I think we'll probably come back to this, but what, we, what the directive is essentially concerned with is things like transport, energy, uh, healthcare, those sorts of things which are an essential part of any sort of developed economy and, and society. Yes, so it, it, it affects um, the sectors that 
it uh, impacts include energy, transport, water, banking, the financial market infrastructure, healthcare and digital infrastructure. And by digital infrastructure, they, they will include, they, they specify three types of digital uh, service providers, including search engines, cloud computing services and online marketplaces. Yeah, so the National Cybersecurity Centre then has published uh, some guidance on how these industries uh, should implement uh, this directive. And it's, it's, it's pretty uh, detailed, although they will also be publishing in April what they call a cyber assessment framework, which will be a methodology uh, which these sectors can use to to assess whether or not they're achieving yeah. the the principles that are set out in the directive. Because there's a bit of a staged process in that the, the directive will take effect in British law in May, mm-hmm. and then from that date there's a further six months given to identify uh, OESs, yes. uh, which will give more certainty to exactly who or what is falls within the ambit of the of the directive yeah yeah so do you think dcms will be actually making a list of all of the companies or will it be broader than that i think it'll probably be on a sector okay basis um we don't know yet and the reason we don't know is if at least we can't find it <laughs> usually what happens with a directive is there's some form of of domestic legislation in the UK that tends to be what we call a statutory instrument uh, called a regulation which is different to the EU regulation which is automatically binding without legislation within the domestic system and we haven't seen that yet Uh, what I suspect will happen is that they'll just copy out the directive so it'll have a title something along the NIS directive regulations, but it'll simply reproduce the text of the directive. Uh, but what I suspect it'll be some sort of future proofing, and that power will be given to the relevant secretary of state. Which I suspect will it be culture, media, and sport? Yeah. Uh, the secretary of state for culture, media, and sport, for he or she to um, from time to time add to the list of industries if you like that will be regulated we don't know for certain but that tends to be the way that uh, the uk approaches these sorts of of issues so i don't think it'll be company x company y yeah i think it'll be providers of activity x activity y Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, because obviously then every time there was a merger between two energy companies for example yeah, they'd have to update the system to include their new names as a technical point but i suspect it'll be done on a on a sectoral basis rather than at the specific level of, of the actual companies involved. But we don't know. Right. We, we, yeah. We'll have to wait, see the final see. domestic uh, legislation. Um, so the National Cybersecurity Centre's guidance is quite helpful. Definitely easier to navigate than the EU directive yeah. itself. Yeah. <laughs> And they very helpfully break break it down, break the directive down into these four objectives. The, the first one is managing risk, then protecting against cyber attack, then detecting cybersecurity events, and fourthly, minimising the impact of cybersecurity incidents. 
So the thing that I thought was interesting with respect to the first objective, so managing security risk, was the they they break they break that down then further into different areas. And the fourth one is supply chain. So it says understanding and managing security risks and networks to networks and information systems which arise from dependencies on external suppliers. Um, and then this links up with a, a story which was published by digitalhealth.net, uh, which was entitled NHS Digital Welcomes New Guidance as UK, UK Firms Told to Shore Up Cybersecurity. Uh, so it's <laughs> a snappy title. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, of course, when I imagine the general public, if they're hearing about this coming in, the thing they're going to think about straight away is going to be the impact that WannaCry had yeah. on uh, NHS services last year. So I guess this is partly the reason why DigitalHealth.net have, have asked NHS Digital to comment on this uh, this this guidance and this directive and of course they're saying that they they welcomed it yeah <laughs> they couldn't possibly say anything no. else other than that yeah. um but it is interesting that the directive mentions the supply chain in particular and it it mentions things like hardware being important you know so having processes in place to ensure that you can deal with mm. hardware failure or or how how you're going to assess the risk and and, and yeah. kind of uh keep it within within a, an acceptable level of risk and i think more and more that's going to be well risk assessment there's always an element of of uh uncertainty guesswork. and guesswork of <laughs> yeah. course um but what what we've seen in terms of trends in in cyber security cyber risk etc uh, at at the end of, of last year, there was this uh, spectre and and meltdown. I think they were called these vulnerabilities that were found within um, Intel processes. And of course, we all have Intel processes in all of our yeah. machines. And even though these these particular vulnerabilities, they weren't, as far as my understanding of them goes, they weren't. They couldn't be exploited via the internet. You'd have to be within the system really to to, to just within an internal within network a, yeah that's yeah. my understanding yeah. anyway it's 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 a fairly technical when you start reading about these the, yeah. it's it's all fairly technical uh, but my understanding is that the way intel designed their processes in order to make them faster they 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 make them so that the the processor is tries to guess what your next move is going to be so right. when you're using it tries to guess what what's your most likely uh, what are you going to use next yeah for and convenience for, to, ease just, of use yeah yeah and and so when it guesses right it makes everything faster for the user and when it doesn't guess right it doesn't really have much of an impact hmm. on on speed uh so so by doing that it's it's writing things on memory and i think that's what these vulnerabilities are all about they they manage to to to, to get data from your system yeah. by by somehow I don't really fully understand the technical side of it but it somehow interferes with this process and 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 um, and enables the hacker to kind of get information out so this is a hardware problem yeah <laughs> you can't really 
install an, an update to resolve it. And when we think about hardware in terms of national infrastructure, it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit concerning. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think if we look at the, the objectives as a whole as well, they, they clearly follow a logical progression. So the first stage, they're not saying that one is given any more priority than the other, but obviously the first stage is the managing the risk. And then obviously in light of that risk that you highlighted, you then put in place measures to protect against cyber attacks, whereas the biggest risk, then you presumably move your resources to that risk. Then there's about detecting it, so if that doesn't work, and there is a vulnerability or there is an attack, then you detect it. And then the final, which is, I guess is the last resort, is when that attack does happen, making sure that the harmful effects are, are minimised. So it's a very logical progression to the um, uh, objectives. And I think the success of the directive would be measured by you know how often, or ideally how little, you would actually need to detect risks or minimise their impact. If the directive is a success, you don't get to that stage because the risk assessment and the preventative measures have done their job. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's always the case then of, in terms of measurement, measuring something which hasn't occurred, which is always difficult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. Yeah. You, you, you say in five years' time, there's been no major attack, you say, well, this direct has been a success, but you can't really, because there's no cause and effect there, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, necessarily. You know, we could ban polar bears in Swansea. <laughs> and in two years time you could say great look how successful that legislation was <laughs> we haven't had a polar bear attack in swans in the last two years but of course that's entirely <laughs> fallacious reasoning uh, so i don't know it's pretty cold at the moment <laughs> yeah well yeah <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you get my point um <laughs> that um but hopefully you said if objectives a and b do their job yeah uh, there'll be less need to focus on objectives C and D, which is about detecting the, the events. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a euphemism as well, isn't it? It's a cyber yeah. security event. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and then minimising them, you know, hopefully you won't need to go on to those objectives because the first two would have done their job. Yeah. Probably we, yeah. we don't know. It's, it's interesting how sometimes... Sometimes I wonder whether the impact of a security incident is also related to the response more so than the actual attack or the actual yeah. incident itself. Um, so with, with the WannaCry thing, for instance, because there was so, misinform- so much misinformation about what was causing the problem, um, a lot of hospitals and local authorities decided to just turn the systems them off. off. Yeah. <laughs> so the overreaction. Well, again, you see yeah. that that how these four objectives are interlinked because if you've done a, a decent, uh, you know, risk assessment exercise beforehand, then you're more aware of the potential risks. And then if the worst does happen, then there's a cybersecurity event i.e. an attack, yeah. you'd be in more of an informed position to know the, the, the likely effects of that attack, which would hopefully minimise any overreaction on the part of the target uh, organisation. Yeah. That's the theory, anyway. That is the theory. <laughs> and in theory, if, uh, you know, if 
these industries don't comply, they could potentially be fined up to 17 million, um, said DCMS this week. So, yeah, so I mean, there's this, this, there's always a headline figure 17 million maximum fine, so it's an eye watering amount. But I think in practice, you know, it's going to be rare if ever that any fine, let alone a £17 million fine, would be imposed on an organisation. You know, particularly when you're talking about things like the NHS, which is publicly funded. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make much sense to fine them, give money to the Exchequer, who funds the NHS, the Exchequer. And I think generally speaking, you know, it can be counterproductive. You, you financially harm an organisation and that further undermines their ability to put in place adequate cyber security measures. You know, there might be some cloud computing company who are making billions of dollars worth of profit uh, where you might consider levying a big fine on them, uh, you know, in order to make an example of them. But I think in most cases, it's going to be a far more facilitative process rather than one that's purely punitive. Mm -hmm. We always have to have that, you know, punitive element in the background, you know, just to concentrate the mind, if you like. <laughs> um, but I don't think in practice there will be a lot of fines levied. I think the, the whole tenor of the guidance and the directive is all about, you know, working together, industry and the state together to facilitate um, cyber security. Mm-hmm. So that's what I want to say about the, about the fine or the potential mm-hmm. fine. Just thinking, I'm I'm reading a book at the moment, which is quite interesting. Um, but I'm I'm afraid I will mispronounce the name of the author, so I'm just gonna have a quick okay. a, a quick check here. Found it. <laughs> so I'm reading the Securitization of Society by Mark Schulenberg. <laughs> he's Dutch. Okay. <laughs> or at least he's writing about uh, uh, a couple of case studies in the Netherlands. Okay. And he he makes use of this philosophical, sociological concept of the assemblage. And it's basically an analysis of how security and risk in societies, you know, it's no longer just the purview of the state, really. It's oh, okay. Uh, you know, there is there is no security framework that is that has that sort of hierarchical structure. Yeah. There probably never was. but No, but particularly in the digital age, I think that's even less yeah. feasible, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a really interesting analysis, actually, because he... he, he I will confess that I've, I've only just read the okay. introduction so far, but I think what he's doing there is he's looking at how security programs yeah. kind of emerge, like it, in their implementation, how they actually work, yeah. They emerge from the uh, intersection of all these different agencies, uh, the police, the private sector, yeah. I don't know, victim services, kind of working together, not always in the same direction, because yeah. they're not always pushing in the same direction or pulling in the same direction, but somehow that that's how security happens yeah yeah that's the assemblage (laughs) yeah these different actors yeah that's interesting i mean particularly in this area i'm not sure if i mentioned it in a previous podcast but it's a very famous harvard law review um uh, article which is anonymous 
guess the author of the time thought it was such a controversial view <laughs> that uh, he or she didn't want to put his name to it, which is quite an odd thing for law academics to contemplate. Because if you ever got a publication in the Harvard Law Review, you're, you definitely, <laughs> you wanna definitely want to claim the credit <laughs> for it. Um, and his or her argument was essentially one cyber attacks are a good thing because it concentrates the mind. Um, you know, it, it reveals problems, it, lead, it, it gives a political impetus to put in place measures to protect cyber infrastructure. You know, it gives a justification for the more, more spending of resources by the state, etc. But the other argument is also used is what he, refer, he or she refers to as private fences are better than public law controls. So what he essentially means by that is the you know, public law, and, um, and uh, when you think of the criminal law as a branch of, of public law, um, is can only do so much, yeah. and what you really need is what he calls these private fences, essentially target hardening done by the private entities themselves. So this piece of this directive is can be seen in that context. You know, the regulatory scholars might think of it as a piece of regulated self-regulation, which sounds an oxymoron. <laughs> what I mean by that is that clearly there's, a, there's a, a impetus or an incentive for these companies to do that anyway because of the reputational harm that can be caused, the financial harm that can be caused by these attacks. Uh, so they do this anyway, but what this does is gives them a push towards that. So that's what we mean by regulating. So it's mm-hmm. encouraging, or well, more than encouraging in this case, forcing entities to self-regulate in a sense by putting mm-hmm. in place these uh, um, these measures who might be seen in that um, um, sort of light. But certainly I think the idea now that security in all its forms is the preserve of the state is, is I think quite an old-fashioned, outdated idea now, and I guess that's why I didn't even know the book existed before you mentioned it to me. I guess that's touched upon in, in the book. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, the state's still there, but if you talk about this assemblage, and a lot of the work is done by private entities, and that's essentially what this requires them to do. Mm-hmm. It requires, in many cases, private organisation, transport firms, energy firms, water companies, etc., to spend their own private money in protecting um, um, critical infrastructure uh, because that benefits society as, as a whole. So you can really see that assemblage there between the state and the, uh, and the private sector. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's a bit of regulatory theory for the, <laughs> for the day. That sounds like an interesting article. Maybe we can uh, put the link on the notes mm. on the shelf. Excellent. Well, I think we can move on to the next... Uh, story we should probably keep it brief because we are i imagine very close to our half an hour we're trying to keep these to half an hour so and failing miserably but at least (laughs) we try it (laughs) um so the other story that i want to talk about is about the coin check hack uh, but specifically about their decision to uh, repay the users who who lost uh, some money mm. as a result of this uh, cyber heist, as we are now referring to these. So we should say CoinCheck is, is sort of the, the lesser-known cousin of Bitcoin. Yes. So it's essentially a, a cyber currency, uh, one that has a much lower price. 
Yeah. <laughs> and Bitcoin at the yeah, moment. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, Japanese. It's a Japanese uh, cryptocurrency. And about two weeks ago, it was found out that they, they'd been the victims of, of a, a cyber heist. So 260,000 users were, were impacted uh, by this. They, the, the total stolen were 523 million coins, which was the equivalent to 400 million US dollars. Mm. Uh, so quite, quite a bit of money there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the interesting thing is that they have decided to uh, repay the customers who'd lost money within within 48 hours of the having discovered the the heist i'm i'm referring to an article that was published by bloomberg technology by the way entitled coin check to repay users who lost money in 400 million hack <laughs> dollar hack uh, so that that's the story uh, i'm looking at yeah and the, and the other interesting thing is that we don't really know where they're getting them the money from to repay the customers oh, okay <laughs> so there's there's that as well perhaps they invested in bitcoin when it was <laughs> a much lower level perhaps they did <laughs> but i think this is a, a really interesting issue cryptocurrencies in, 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 in general. Obviously they've got a bit of a checkered past because uh, particularly Bitcoin is most closely associated um, at least historically with illegal activity. You know, although, although, to start with the whole idea was for it to be in its inception the idea was to, to move away from you know the corrupt yeah, yeah. capitalist uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the oligarchy yes. yeah yeah anyway but, uh, but, but well it's like and like the internet itself it, it's it's a it, it's it's neither good nor bad uh, it's just a tool which can be used for good or bad purposes uh, you know and that might have been the original idea whoever the person is who and we don't know do we who created the idea of, of cryptocurrencies or bitcoin but it is i think most closely associated with things like silk road and you know these you know dark websites where you can buy drugs and illegal weapons, etc. But I think from a financial perspective, what is even more interesting is it's now becoming more mainstream, definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, it, you know, I think there's some even some institutions now, e-commerce institutions, are accepting Bitcoin payments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the danger with it, of course, is that with other currencies, if you invest in pounds, euros, dollars, etc., that's backed up by the state. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you, you look at ten pound note in your pocket, etc. You know, the, the Bank of England guarantees to pay the bearer ten pound, etc. It's backed up by a state uh, body, the Bank of England, uh, and the gold reserves, etc. I won't get too much into a, a <laughs> macroeconomics <laughs> lesson, uh, but with Bitcoin or, or any other form of cryptocurrency, there's no there's no backing up of it. Mm-hmm. And of course, in this particular instance, where people lost money, yes, they were compensated for it. So there's no particular loss, at least on the victim's part. Well, obviously, the company suffered a big loss, but you know that's not always going to be the case. You know, we you said they don't know where they got the money from. If this was an even you know multi-billion-dollar uh, scam or mm-hmm. fraud or hack, then could they do that? You know, probably not. And then the investors lose their money so you know, I think there's issues there in terms of, of not really what we talk about much here but financial 
regulation mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well. And you know that I mean, obviously, Bitcoin has gone through the roof or has dropped back a bit recently, but it's gone through the roof in terms of its its value. And a lot mm-hmm. of economists take the view that it's a bubble, and we all know what happens to bubbles; yeah. they eventually burst. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I think there's probably some form of regulation. Yeah. On the horizon. Yes. Um, yes. 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 You mentioned that uh, Theresa May is is talking about bringing cryptocurrencies within the the remit of existing money laundering and terrorism financing regulations etc so i think you know you know and of course that's the problem if something is is non-mainstream is niche then it can escape the regulators reach if you like yeah when something becomes more mainstream then you know that's yeah. an invitation to yeah. to to regulate so and i mean we were discussing this earlier but even if you do regulate what, what you know to what extent can you enforce it because actually um uh, what, what one i'll just read this bit from the article it says coincheck was four months past its deadline for receiving a license necessary to operate as part of japan's new legislature to vet and audit cryptocurrency exchanges it was allowed to continue operating while awaiting a decision blah 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 uh, the agency is getting ready to penalise CoinCheck in relation to the hack. Uh, da, 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 da. Media reports also said the FSA will ask company officials uh, about the circumstances leading to the loss, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, Japan is attempting to regulate yeah. uh, the, the cryptocurrency market. Um, and okay, this coin check obviously didn't have the license yet. Right. So maybe <laughs> we can't say whether or not the regulation uh, would have worked. Would have worked. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean. But well, then you'd always have the problem of you, you know the race to the bottom mentality. So you know, if you want to set up a cryptocurrency business then if Japan heavily regulates that, you don't set it up in Japan. And I'm sure there'll be a fair share of countries in the world willing to set themselves up as sort of safe havens, minimally regulated uh, economies where, um, you know, these Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency um, dealers, developers, etc. will will flood to. So it's the age-old, what's the age-old wisdom problem of the internet and the <laughs> worldwide nature of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Answers on a postcard. <laughs> but anyway, I think the point is, it, we just touched upon it today, uh, but, you know, if, I think it's something that we'll come back to. Yeah. Cryptocurrency generally, uh, its its problems, uh, how possible solutions, etc. I know he's a, a friend of Swansea uh, University, Jamie Bartlett, has written <laughs> a fair amount on um, uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, etc., um, so, you know, we'll do a bit more research and in, in the future edition, <laughs> I'm sure we'll have a more detailed discussion of Bitcoin and blockchain and all these other related issues. Fantastic. And until then, I hope you enjoyed oh, hang this about, episode. Hang about, hang oh, about. Oh, oh. Don't we have some news? Oh, don't, we have yes. some, don't we have some free publicity that we, we want to provide? We some free publicity. <laughs> Here we go. The weekend of the 23rd to 25th of February, the Global Legal Hackathon takes place on that weekend. Yes, and it is 
truly global. Um, if you have a look on the global hackathon website. Yeah, and it says here there's 15 days, 11 hours, 4 minutes and 14, 13, 12 seconds <laughs> to register your place. Yeah, yeah. So if you are um, in Swansea, you can register to take part in the Swansea one, but also have a look because it really is happening all across the world in different places yeah. being... Uh, well, six continents according to this. Yes, that's right. How many are there in the world? <laughs> is there a team from Antarctica? There must be. <laughs> <laughs> Probably some research outpost there that's decided to... Uh, to yeah, take part. yeah. So the idea of the Global Legal Hackathon is to get people together, lawyers, computer scientists, local businesses, whatever, and over the course of these couple of days, between the 23rd and 25th, come up with tech solutions for real problems that yeah. we may have within the legal sphere, yeah. I suppose. So, yeah, so I think there's going to be a lot... A lot of Red Bull and pizza. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to, on social media, on Twitter, if you, the hashtags they have, you global legal, legal hack and then hashtag GLH2008. So if you want to follow the, the conversation, you can do so on, on, on Twitter. But it should be good. And Swansea's uh, entering the team. Yes. So fingers crossed. Yeah. And the other thing we have is a pint of science, which I know nothing about. So uh, <laughs> I shall let Sarah... Discuss that one. Yeah, Pint of Science is a UK-wide festival that happens in May. It's 14th to the 16th of May, and it's coming to Swansea for the first time this year. And it's basically a series of evenings where uh, researchers and the general public may come together in an informal uh, in an informal setting, as, as the name Pint of Science indicates. <laughs> Do they take place in a pub? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so see what uh, I did that. <laughs> um, yeah. So each each of the evenings there will be two speakers, and there are generic themes. Uh, so you can go to the pub that's focused on environment. I should probably just actually look at the actual themes rather than making this up. So according to this, our events fall into the following topics: beautiful mind. Neuroscience, psychology, and psychiatry. So obviously, there's a nod there to the the Oscar-winning film. Um, atoms to galaxies, physics, chemistry, mass, astronomy, our body, medicine, human biology, health, and the effect of pikes and pies on it, I suppose. Planet Earth, geosciences, planet sciences, and zoology. Tech me out, which might be more useful for our. Uh, audience, yeah. uh, which is biotechnology, robotics, computers. And game one that might be relevant to our audience, our society, law, history, politics, policy and languages. And then creative reactions, art and science come together. Yes. So yes. a very broad church there. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think all of those will be taking place in Swansea. No. Uh, but I'm sure at least four or five of those overall themes of Pint of Science will be represented in pubs dotted around yeah, the place. Yeah, and of course, it, uh, as we know, Swansea is the centre of the universe, but, um, <laughs> you know, some of our listeners might not be from, exactly. you know, the, yeah, so the beautiful have... city of Swansea. So, and you can, if you go on the website, if you just Google Pint of Science, there's a, a long list from Bath to York, and many in between that, where these events take place. Uh, so you can you can find the one that's closest to you. 
Indeed. Always of more in- most interest to you. Drink responsibly. <laughs> Always. Okay. And on that note, <laughs> see you next time. Bye. Bye.